You are listening to How We Got Loud. Let's go on a journey together, exploring stories about the people, technology, and passion that built the history of live sound. I'm your host, Chris Leonard. Early on in life, I knew that all I ever wanted to do was live sound. We all know that feeling, whether it was the first time you pushed up a fader and heard that kick drum beat your chest, or hearing the crowd roar as they see their favorite band for the first time. It's a feeling like no other, and every experience fuels the desire for more. Well, I just always have had a desire to uh, get the best sound. It's like, you know, audio nirvana. I want to reach that. I'm always reaching for that. I'm also uh, always anxious to succeed at a challenge. A lot of the artists that I work with, I almost purposely worked with artists that are known for being very challenging to work with because I love succeeding at a challenge with, uh, you know, with an artist. There is just something about this industry where our primary goal is to deliver an experience that people will remember for a lifetime. While the tech innovation over time is key, I believe at the core, all of us have a passion that drives us. Let's look back and explore how the people, technology, and passion all intertwine to get us where we are today. The history of live sound is so much more than just technology advancement. I want to know who are the people and what are their stories. I believe you will find some very common threads as we go on this journey together of how we got loud. Today I'm talking with Ken Newman, currently the front of house engineer for Barry Manilow, who's had an amazing career over the last 40 plus years with acts like Paul Anka, Shirley MacLaine, Liza Minnelli, Chris Isaac, Anita Baker, Julio Iglesias, the list goes on. But before we get to all of that journey, let's jump back and see where it all started for Ken. Ken, so let's uh, let's let's talk about um, your your early beginnings. How did how did you initially get into uh, into this crazy world of, of doing sound? Ooh, long story, I guess. But, uh, you know, I was born and I had a soldering iron in my hand when I was born because my parents were ham radio operators and my father was uh, at, a, at a bunch of electronic stores. And so I was always surrounded by electronic stuff. And so it was one thing or another growing up as I was, you know, maybe six, seven, eight years old. I'm working on ham radio things and uh, electronic projects. And then, uh, you know, then I'm in school, in elementary school, I took trumpet lessons and tried to play the trumpet in the school band. And then next thing you know, the, the leader of the band says, hey, you know, we want to start recording the band. And so um, so I said, oh, well, you know, my father has an electronic store. He could probably get some good deals on tape recorders and whatever other equipment we need because he sells electronic stuff. I was wrong, but, you know, my father helped us out and he got some some tape recorders of some sort. They weren't the best or anything, but we got some tape recorders and I started uh, being in charge of the uh, school band recordings. And that was like a big deal. And then uh, one thing leads to another and I'm more involved in recording and sound stuff more and more. And uh, then in, in high, I got in high school and in high school we had a TV um, studio in the school and I got involved in that a little bit. And of course it was in the old days. So it was like a little black and white studio with uh, two inch tape and all. But, um, 
it was TV and it was, we had to do audio and we had a meeting, or a, I should say a morning show every morning. So we had to make sure that that was working. I remember there was an Altec 50, 1567 was our audio console. So we did our morning broadcast and then that was about all we had to do all day for our TV show. Uh, but then um, I somehow met this guy and, you know, I, I like to think that in my life, I've just met people that have really changed my life in a lot of ways. Anyway, I met this guy who was a student a couple of years older than me. And he, of all things, had a studio in his house. And that was like unheard of in that era. And I, he let me come over to his house and check out his studio. And I, I, so I would ride my bicycle over to his house every Sunday and hang out with him while he recorded these bands. And oh, it was great. It was a, uh, a, small studio in his basement of his parents house but he had a four track half inch tape deck and man just you know the sounds that he would do and they would that he would get it was just uh, so invigorating and i was like this is it this is cool i gotta do this right and uh and so um i said well my parents aren't gonna let me take over my basement but maybe i can put together some equipment and record bands uh remotely like you know take equipment to the bands instead of uh have them come to me. And so I did that. I got some equipment. My father helped me get deals on a you know, better tape deck and some microphones and a mixer and this and that. And before I knew it, I was recording bands, uh, little, you know, local rock bands. And one thing leads to another, then I'm working for a local rock band. And then I'm trying to figure out, you know, how do you do sound for a local rock band? And it just, you know, just evolved really, uh, really generically and uh i just knew technology stuff so i just was one notch above everybody else at that point and so working for a band that had a if you want to call it a sound system at the time i helped them improve the sound system and um and worked on that and then ah, gosh just one thing leads to another and before you know it they're uh they're they're a label act they're working on rca records and then i'm working for other bands that are national recording acts and next thing you know i'm working for a sound company and all, on and on i could just you know i could tell you the exact details of exactly <laughs> where i was and stuff but that's boring but the point is that um i just one thing evolved into another and i'm working for a sound company and i'm doing live sound and i'm working on a national tour and we're we're doing sound for a band from England and it's just really cool. And the, I'll tell you what the, um, the moment when I said, Oh, I have to do this for the rest of my life. Well, for me, wasn't even a sound moment necessarily, but it was a, you know, something that I achieved using sound equipment. And let's see if I can tell this story quickly. So I'm working for the sound company. It was in the mid seventies. So it wasn't a very good, but a bunch of equipment we had, but the Doobie brothers were on the road. Now the Doobie brothers were in their, in their, you know, prime right at that point. And, but their, their sound crew had decided to buy their own sound system and setting, instead of getting like a sound company to provide their sound system, the band owned their own sound system. And it was the Doobie brothers with the Ozark mountain daredevils opening to them. And they were doing a national tour. Well, they had bought consoles that were made by, I think a company called was called Stevenson. Anyway, the company built these consoles just for the Doobie Brothers tour, a monitor console and a house console. And the Doobie Brothers at that time had two drummers. So they had what was considered lots of inputs at the time. They had 30 inputs, right? It was big. So they would they needed a 30-channel console for monitors, 30-channel console for house. And what happened when they were on the East Coast where I was? their console blew up one night. And so they had to get a new console real quick. So they 
one of the guys on the crew knew my boss. And so they called my boss and they said, bring your console. You have a 30 channel console, right? And I'm like, yep, we have a 30 channel console. And so bring your console to our next gig and we're good. We need it right away. So we drive out there to Pennsylvania somewhere and we deliver the console. And I could tell you stories about the console. It was not pretty, but uh, anyway, what the console had in the console frame, my, my boss had built a uh, Altec 9860 into the frame. Now 9860 was a single channel third octave eq that had a very beefy uh preamp in it lots of gain available maybe 20 db a gain or something if, if you needed it and lots of headroom as well so the reason i mention that is because that was the final thing in the chain after all the parts of the console to go to feed the sound system was that eq and so i'm out there with the doobie brothers and they had also gotten a console from another company and they so they're doing they're doing the show with the Ozark Mountain Daredevils opening uh, with this other console and it's sounding like really bad and so you know it's uh, someplace in Maryland I think we were right and so they're doing the show the Ozark Mountain Daredevils do like two songs and it sounded so bad that they cut their sh- their set short they're like I remember I can remember like it was yesterday and this is a long time ago but uh, the one of the musicians in the band comes off stage and he says man sounds like, sounds like sand sandpaper out there and I was like oh I know what that sounds like <laughs> you know everything's all distorted nothing's clean at all and I was like oh this guy just needs more gain on his console. The console does not have enough output level to drive his sound system. So I'll offer my 9860, which has a lot of really clean gain, and he can just I can just patch it in line with the feed to the PA, which of course at the time was one XLR, right? I'll patch my 9860 in line with the PA feed, and it'll fix everything because all of a sudden he'll be able to turn everything down and he won't overdrive everything on the console. And sure enough, he said, I got him on the intercom and I said, listen, I'll just put my EQ in there. And he was like, yeah, sure, let's try it. So I, I get my EQ out of the console. I put it in line and I crank up the gain to like 15, 20 dB or something. And I go out there on stage and I go, check. And the my voice was so much louder than the opening band and so much cleaner than the opening band that the place went nuts. The whole place just went, <laughs> yay! You know, and so there was my moment and I went, yeah, I could do that. You know, so that was my moment where I said, wow, this is great. I, I, I did something that caused so much joy for people in the audience. I got to do this. And so that was my, I got to do this moment. It was really cool to be able to clean up that sound of that whole show. It was great. So, you know, what, what's interesting about that is um, there, there's two sides to what created that moment, right? So there was, a, there was a technology side to that moment of, you know, there was a problem uh, and there, there was a, a technological way of, of solving it. Um, and so in, on, in one aspect, you were driven to find that solution. Oh, hey, I have a solution. I can get there. On the other hand, uh, I, you probably didn't realize um, the most value at that time you're gonna get out of it was the was the emotion that you felt from being able to deliver that experience to an audience. Am I right? Exactly. That was it. Who knew that that was gonna happen? Right. And so I, you know, I I find this theme of you know what we do as as sound people in this industry of you know i i'm i'm curious on at, at the core what drives us or the industry right does the technology drive us and then the emotional response comes after or vice versa is there this emotional response that then you know propels the need for technology you know like yeah yeah for the came first right yeah yeah right you know yeah. and it's it's you know and if i if i 
process it out. I think about, you know, the artists have created this work of art, this experience, this medium that's supposed to be uh, engaged upon collectively. Right. right? Um, and yet you need technology to uh, to continue that. You know, we're responsible for delivering that medium and, and engaging in that. Um, and it's so looking back now, uh, you know, you said you kind of started off as somewhat of a tech head in some ways in the fact that you know your father worked electronics uh yep, you know yep. you built you built some of your own console type of stuff and 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 the recording rigs um do you think you were initially fueled by the tech side and then the the passion energy connection element came after uh or do you think some of it was there and you just didn't realize it what was that like for you yeah that's a good good question again but uh, i think it's yeah the tech side was like yeah i want to do this because i i get a rush out of you know making people happy with something I did with this technology, you know, just that's, I guess that's the core of it. You know, that's uh, why I would do anything that I would do would be because I want to make this great sound that makes people happy. That's, that's what's great about it. And so, and roughly what, what year range was this, um, the Doobie Brothers show? So that was 74. I want to jump back to, um, you know, so you, you created uh, or built, your your own mobile recording rig. Um, what what was what was that made of, and what did it take to to get to there? Well, so uh, I uh, my my friend in his home studio, he had a a Gately mixer, and that was his mixer in his studio. And believe it or not, in his home studio, all that mixer had was four input channels, and so and a stereo output. So I was like, well, Gately, that's a good brand. Okay, so I kept on top of what kind of products they put out, and they produced a product called the ProKit series. And it was actually professional-ish products that could be built from a kit. And it was a six-channel mixer. Woo! Six-channel stereo <laughs> mixer. Had a lot of channels. And and it was not only built from a kit, so it was very economical, but it was modular in that you could buy a reverb module and you could buy an EQ module. And that, that way you could start with just your basic mixer and then grow from there so i said well that's for me that's perfect in fact i ordered one before they even were available and i remember um getting a uh, ampex am10 mixer as a temporary you know like a uh, substitution for the mixer because i ordered it and they didn't have it so they said well here take this am10 in the meantime and the am10 is like a classic mixer to this day people look at that and go oh yeah ampex oh yeah 70s oh great but anyway um but the uh but the gately pro kit was really neat because again i was able to build a kit because i was you know, I knew how to solder and I knew how to follow directions and it was fantastic. And so that uh, became the core of my recording setup. And then a friend of mine said, hey, well, you need more channels. So uh, how about if I buy a, a Shure mixer and we'll add some more channels to your mixer. So instead of six channels, you'll have 10 channels. It'll be really capable. And so he bought a little Shure M688, I think it was called, a little Shure stereo mixer that looks kind of like an M67. And we added that in the rack and there was my recording setup, 10 whole channels. And I don't know, somehow I recorded bands with 10 channels. I'm not sure how I did it, but um, but I have the recordings and they're not horrible. You know, Some <laughs> of them are not not great, but they're not horrible. So it's pretty impressive what I was able to do with 10 channels. And what were you recording to? Uh, oh, and then the tape deck that I got. So my father, I, I don't know, somehow I I, um, I had a connection or something with TIAC. TIAC made these nice tape decks at the time. And um, they had, you know, 
consumer models and then higher end consumer models. And I said to my father, I want to get the higher end consumer model because it takes 10 and a half inch reels so, and it goes 15 IPS. So let me get that. And so he helped me get that. And I um, got that through his connections uh, from one of his distributors. And we got that TX tape deck, which I still have to this day. And it's sitting in my garage somewhere. But I put that um, put that uh, TX tape deck in portable cases, separated the electronics from the from the transport, put it in two separate cases that Ampex made and I bought used. And um, that was my recording rig was the tape deck and the uh, the mixer, the two mixers. And the um, and I had a little power amp, a Dynaco power amp that powered my really loud headphones so that I could sit right near the band and still hear what I was doing in the headphones. That's awesome. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and 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 so you even and you even modified that setup though to include uh, pan pan knobs. Well, yeah. So the the Gately uh, ProKit mixer had switches on each channel, so you could either assign a an input channel to left or to right or to both, but not anything in between. So I said, well, that's kind of you know I don't really want that. I want pan pots. I want to be able to do yours is no disgrace. You know the guitar on yours yours is no disgrace because the band recorded. I mean the band played. You're just yours. Is no disgrace. And you're familiar with that thing? You know, it's got the guitar going mm -hmm. back and forth. And so I wanted to be able to do that. And so I, I somehow, I don't know how I did it, uh, but somehow I contacted somebody and they told me, well, just do this and do this and get these parts and those parts. And I made a pan pot module for that mixer and inserted it where you would normally insert, I guess, something else or something. <laughs> anyway, it was bizarre. But somehow I made this pan pot module and uh, connected it to the mixer. And now I had panning on every channel instead of just the switches. It was very cool. Very cool awesome. modification. Uh, you know, who knew that like a 16 year old kid could do this kind of stuff, <laughs> but it worked. So fast forward a little bit. You, so you said you eventually started to work uh, for a sound, sound company um, after doing some of your own personal stuff. Yeah. So then uh, working for band, I, uh, got, you know, I made connections with different people. And uh, one of the people that I made a connection with was the salesman at the company in New York City. The company was called Martin Audio at the time. And there was a salesman there named Marvin Welkowitz. And Marvin Welkowitz was really into live sound. So when I came through the door looking for some live sound gear, they said, oh, go to that guy, go see Marvin. And uh, so I went to see Marvin, even though Martin Audio was kind of a, a recording studio kind of supply house. And um, so this is not the Martin Audio in terms of. No, no, it was a sales place. <laughs> no, not Martin Audio as in um, England and all that. No, it's just a place in New York City called Martin Audio. And <laughs> way before, or in my mind, way before Martin Audio, the, the speaker uh, manufacturer. So uh, anyway, so Martin Audio was the place. Marvin Welkowitz was the guy. And I worked with him on building this whole little sound system for this band that I worked for. And Marvin saw that I was able to make this work and make that work and put things together and so forth. So when the opportunity arose, he said, hey, you know, I know this sound company in New Jersey, this old guy that uh, needs uh, a guy to work for him. You know, you, you would really work well for him. So how would you like to work for him? I was like, yeah, let's go. Let's do it. So I moved to New Brunswick, New Jersey and worked for this little sound company in New Brunswick. And uh, it was uh, it was great. It was a real you know stepping stone for to work for a sound company and help build things and, and make gigs happen and so forth and and not to mention he also owned a whole bunch of hammond organs and pianos so we would go out on gigs just delivering organs and pianos sometimes too and it was great to be just doing a lot of gigs so and this was csi audio in around 1974 
Uh, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it was. Yeah, CSI audio. Yeah. So when when you walked in there, what 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 type of gear did they have? You know, speaker console wise, like what what existed at that time for you to work on? Well, he had built all his own speaker cabinets. He had built the wooden cabinets that surrounded his horns, and he uh, tried to use good stuff. Uh, but he had some interesting approaches. Uh, he had so he had some some W bins. You know what those are, of course, yep. right? But they were big. They had like. Well, like four fifteens in a big giant W bin, right? And uh, it was large. I mean, tall, big, beefy bin, and it sounded mm -hmm. sounded pretty solid. Then he had some smaller ones that only had two fifteens in them, and then he had I forget what else, but you know, some horns and some other horns. The interesting thing that he had going was the, his console and his um, and his uh, power amp situation was very bizarre. He had Crown DC300s, not DC300As, but DC300s, and that he had what he called, or what were called uh, PA adapters on them. I don't know. You ever heard of that? No. Okay. So what, what it was meant to do is meant it, it would take, it, it was like a 2U adapter box that would take the outputs of the power amp and then put them into a... Uh, into another connector, like a you know another pair of banana connectors, that would then feed a whole bunch of seventy volt transformers. So I think it was all seventy volt line based, and mm -hmm. we would power everything with those Crown DC three hundreds with the PA adapters on them. And though we would have just horns upon horns, and you could just tack a whole bunch of horns onto one power amp because you would tap the horn at whatever power amp you uh, power level I should say you wanted. It's very common in in. Uh, installations mm -hmm. but he was doing it for live sound it was pretty bizarre but it worked you know it was pretty successful we had a good sounding pa and we knew how to make it work and it, it worked pretty great and uh, and then but it was pretty bizarre that we had those pa adapters was the kind of heart of our crown power amp system uh and i'm not sure i never knew why he adapted those instead you know adopted those i should say instead of um just having the outputs of the power amp go directly to the speakers, he must have been convinced that he must have to have transformers at every uh, horn and and transformers at every speaker and tap the amount of power that each speaker should get and stuff like that in order to make it work right. I guess he was just convinced that was the right way to do it. <laughs> and so what did I know? I was just following along. But and, uh, the what, console, but the console, console was, yeah. was the trick. Oh, this was amazing. So, you know, it wasn't, easy to find a console to buy at that time. Uh, you couldn't just go out and buy a, even a Mackie mixer or even a Tapco mixer. It was all before that stuff, right? So if you wanted a, a console, you had to sort of build something yourself. So I, if I can, I can picture it, but I, I don't know if I can describe it, but it was three racks, three rack widths wide, right? It was a, a frame that was shaped like a console would be shaped like a like a mixing console, but three rack widths wide. So picture that you know it's got the sloped uh, panel there, and it, and he, then he had so on each rack width, so he had two Altec mixers on each uh, section of the console, and then that section hinged up so you could get to the back of it or something, uh, you know, for servicing and stuff. And on the <laughs> on the first two mixers they were 1592s that was the newer solid state uh altec mixer so that was quote unquote better 1592 mixer uh he had altec i mean not altec he had uh api 550 eqs that his tech this guy marty had you know 
wired into his mixers so that each channel had an API 550 on his Altec, I mean, yeah, his Altec 1592 mixers. So he had 10 channels per rack width and then 10 channels of 550. It was very bizarre. I can, I can show you a picture of it, but it was very, by that, today's standards, 30, it was quite bizarre. Is that 30 but channel console that But it was time? 30 channels, six wow. of these mixers, right? But, the, but, the, um, but only the first 10 channels or something like that had the 550s on them because those were kind of pricey. And so the other channels had the, um, like the middle, middle two mixers had the Marty EQ, which was just a high and low EQ for each channel. And then the last two channels, uh, you know, 10 channels of mixers had, um, had no EQ at all. They were just flat. And so it was very bizarre, uh, kind of configuration, but it worked. It got our 30 channels down to one channel and mixed everything together. And Marty was quite the technical wizard apparently because he made this all work properly. And then we just used it and it was this big giant console, you know, think about that. It was pretty large mm -hmm. and it was heavy and it was in a not current you know not a modern kind of case it was like you, you put it was a big wooden case and you'd put it on the floor and then you'd reach in to lift out the console very very not you know ergonomic at all but but it worked was the point and and with those 550 eqs on the first 10 channels if you did your drums in your first 10 channels it was really good i mean it was way better than a lot of things at the time so we couldn't complain about it you know and event eventually though he said well i need something a little more you know, mainstream. So he got a Sun mixer, and I forget what it was, what the mixer was called, but it was Sun S U N N, uh, mm -hmm. music store kind of brand that actually came out with like a maybe twenty four channel or sixteen channel mixer, and we got one of those, and that was revolutionarily quote unquote better because it was all in one little package. Are you enjoying this conversation? I just launched a new podcast called How We Got Loud where I explore the stories about the people, technology, and passion that built the history of live sound. This is just a taste of the first episode. For the rest of this episode, please subscribe to How We Got Loud on your podcast player or go to howwegotloud.com. I'll also add links in the description. I look forward to going on this journey together with you.